Welcome to the SMB Community Podcast with your hosts, Amy Babinchak, James Kernan, and Carl Polichuk. Produced by and for the Small Biz Thoughts community, we're dedicated to making every IT professional a successful IT professional. Welcome, everybody, to episode 169 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. This is Carl, joined, as always, by Dave and Ryan, and we have a heck of a show. These are fun. I'm, I'm super excited. But I'm going to start us off with a silly one, gents. Do you fold your pizza? I, I, I don't, and nor do I have I ever really thought about it. Like, I don't know why you would do that. It fits in your mouth. Now, I don't need to put the whole slice in my mouth at the same time, which is, seems to me the only reason you would actually fold your pizza. No, see, my answer to this question is, Hell yes. And see, there are, there are certain kinds of not pizza that you yes. don't fold. Not just yes. Hell yes. Um, there are certain kinds you do not fold, just depending on you know, when you get to those places that they have the square pieces where the ones in the middle have no crust at all. I don't understand that philosophy of pizza and I disagree with it. Um, but everything else, a New York style pizza is by definition thin and flexible, not crispy. Uh, and, and if you pick it up from the crust, it will flop over. That's why you fold it to create structural integrity. So like a paper airplane, it can go exactly but, where but you want it to go. If you're going to use two hands, can't you support that, that long yes, tail? Yes, but that's the point, right? When, when you're a New Yorker and or have learned from New Yorkers about how to eat pizza, you're doing something else with that other hand, like lecturing somebody and, <laughs> and doing your, your job. you got to fold that piece of pizza in one next hand. To you. I am 100% on board. I fold my pizza. I admit it. I think it is also like I'm an East Coast thin crust kind of kind of guy. I love a deep dish. I want, I love all pizza in all of its forms. Pizza um, is correct. I will say I fold. And in particular, there is there is the DC, the jumbo slice, which is the giant rotund pizza that you actually do need two hands. And you must fold on one end because your other hand is still holding up more pizza. <laughs> this is only to be consumed between the hours of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Yes. So alcohol might be involved. Yes, there might be alcohol involved. The jumbo slice is a thing. It is not good pizza, but it is also good for its time pizza. Well, see, and this is the thing. Now we have another reason that we need to come and visit Dave. It's, yeah, because... it's, it's more experienced than pizza. So we have a place that does like a 24-inch pizza, which means every slice is a foot long. Yes. You can't fold that enough. Uh, oh, least... you! that is a challenge, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that is a challenge, and challenge is accepted. Yes, that slice can be folded. So so later on, when we go out and do our live road show in the world of, uh, of killing it live, we'll go out there, and we'll have to become the pizza tour. Yeah, the pizza yeah. folding tour. Now we need a, we need a sponsor. Hey. Yeah. Hey, listeners and sponsors, do you want to, do you want to sponsor us on the pizza tour? Because this is clearly the event everyone The, the pizza folding tour. I almost <laughs> named a pizza place, and I thought, no, because then the others won't want to compete for the spots. It's true. Compete for our business, people. <laughs> but speaking of free pizzas, <laughs> buy a robot, if, buy drone if you can. But speaking of sponsors... Agile Blue is a 24 by 7 SOC, XDR, and SOAR providing managed breach protection, including monitoring, detection, and automated response to clouds, networks, and endpoints. 
helping MSPs build their cyber business while increasing gross margins, ARR, and stickiness. Agile Blue's partner program engages, enables, supports, and rewards your business growth with a white-labeled security dashboard, pooled pricing, marketing collateral, and purpose-built sales content. A 24 by 7 extension of your team. Learn more at agileblue.com. Alrighty, well, our first topic today, you, I know everybody listening to this has heard about the employee uh, over at Google that got fired for claiming that the AI called Lambda, a large language model, uh, had become sentient. And that's not completely the whole story, obviously, uh, it never is. But the more interesting piece, uh, I think Wired Magazine, which I'm enjoying more and more all the time, uh, they, they reported that, but then they asked the question like, uh, and aren't you actually using this to draw attention away from the actual problems with AI? <laughs> like whether or not it's sentient, that's, that, that will at some point become a fact and we need to address the fact. Uh, probably hasn't happened yet, but the more interesting thing is, are we using AI appropriately and have we reined it in enough that we can increase how much we rely on it? And you know, we've reported on this show a dozen different times about AI being misused or uh, used in ways where nobody was actually paying attention to the downside. So I, I kind of like this article mainly because it says, yeah, this is an interesting story. And if you want to talk about that, we can, but there's a more interesting story that well, isn't me, getting enough attention. Let me jump in because I want to be very careful. Google fired him for breach of his NDAs, not for the claim. And that's actually an important distinction because by the way, everyone, you're not allowed to just go out and say things about your internal workings of your employer if you have non-disclosure agreements about corporate secrets. So that's important safety tip. Right. <laughs> uh, but but let, me, let me acknowledge something. So first off, no, it's not sentient. Uh, we, come on, we all look at that, we know it's not sentient. It's doing incredibly good pattern matching. However, it's also we also don't have a definition of sentience that we can even apply to understand this. This is why like philosophers have debated this for <laughs> centuries. Like we're trying to apply words that don't even have definitions that we can think about it from ourselves and now we're trying to apply them to technologies. Uh, uh, we're not at that point. I it does incredibly good pattern matching, and if you look at the warnings coming out of AI, and I put that in quotes, machine learning, and all these data science experts, they are saying, "Look, it's going to be deceptive. It's going to look really good. It's going to do incredible pattern matching, and it's going to answer in ways that seem appropriate for the question that it has no self awareness or comprehension of what it means." There are two ways you should go on there. So there's the, yes, Carl, you're 100% right. It's like distraction from the real stuff. Oh, and by the way, we should define what that stuff means, but we don't need to do it yet because we're still a long way from it actually happening. Well, and, and so? see, so, no, see, this is the problem, right? I I think that there, there there's two levels of this. There's where are we now and what is it technically capable of versus what is the intention and what were they afraid of actually being disclosed in this process? On the first hand, you say pattern matching. I say, you remember the game 20 questions that we, that we all used to play when oh, we yeah. were kids? And we all used to think of it in the context of discernment and investigation. It's not really that, it's just pattern matching. And you can go out there right now and find really effective 20 questions robots on uh, games and whatever online that, you know, 
it's a piece of software off in the wild blue yonder and you're sitting here at your keyboard and you bring to it whatever randomness you want to bring to it and in less than 20 questions it will recognize what you're doing because it has phenomenal data sets that it can use to identify and recognize patterns that's great the second question is the hard one would they have freaked out if he said this is sentient and and it's a bad thing and it's and it's wrong um it, would they, have, if they weren't actually trying to get to that point, wouldn't their reaction have been, you know, this is a person who's worked an awful lot and he's really stressed out and we understand. So we're just going to go have a conversation with him and everything is going to be okay. When they freak out, it indicates that they doth protest too much. And I think it's an indication of where they're going. Now, to give a little color to this, I had the experience this uh, this week of sitting on an airplane, going at to and coming from um, a, a, a work, an actual work event, and uh, sometimes airplanes across the country are the place the best to actually catch up on movies that you haven't seen. So I was looking through the things that I hadn't seen, and I took the time, and, and I'll say for everybody's sake, I took the bullet for y'all. I watched the movie Moonfall. Have you guys seen that? No. Nope, it, I, I, I'll say hands down, worst movie made in the last <laughs> 10 years. Absolutely awful, terrible, horrible, no good movie. Um, it is a, a commercial for Elon Musk. And, and if you ever watched it, you would notice how much they are like, yay, Elon in the movie. And it is a commentary on... AI becoming sentient and how it will take over the world. Now, if you have been paying attention to AI for the last five or seven years, you know that that's what Elon's beef is with AI, is that he feels in the wrong hands, people are going to try to do bad things with it. And whoever gets to sentience with AI first, with bad intentions, is going to tear down the fabric of humanity and society. Now, the movie does an awful job of telling the story but the story they are telling is the one that i think we're on the first little steps toward and we do need to actually pay attention to that, well, that so that leads to carl's question to me of do i think it's actually like a far off i actually do like i actually think this is farther way farther off than we, than do, we do think do you think it will never happen I'm unwilling to ever say something will never happen because a lot of this all expanse of time <laughs> that right? is the entire expanse of time that eliminates all possibilities for infinity. Right. So so the answer is, is I'm never willing to say never because that's that is an unreasonable statement. Will it happen in our lifetime is debatable. I think that's even like, but but will it happen in the next five years? No, I don't see that. So so it's really sort of those bounds I'm willing to put on it. Like lifetime, I'm willing to consider. Next five years, I don't think we're having a. Same well, in the context, well, <laughs> in the context of you and me and individual researchers working on this, and somebody having the light bulb moment that causes it to occur, I don't buy that's going to happen. But I don't think Google is putting a guy on it to think carefully. I think they well, probably have 10,000 people working on this and therein lies the fact that I just think statistically, yeah, they'll get there. I personally think, in beginning to think, uh, sentience, actual sentience of self-awareness will never happen, but it's okay because the closer we approximate it, the better the AI is gonna get. Final note on this, you gotta question whether or not 
Elon Musk is the guy to decide whether or not technology is in the wrong hands. <laughs> and you as Elon has brought up, I'm moving us on to topic number two. <laughs> <laughs> so topic number two for the day. Uh, so we've, and, and it's particularly as someone who's been talking about this kind of legislation for a while, our privacy legislation, I feel we went from zero to something all of a sudden very quickly as, as in Congress at the federal level, there are now there is now a draft bill and actual discussions around a the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. Uh, I don't want to have a debate necessarily on the mer merits. What I want to throw out to the to the Council of Elders here <laughs> is, uh, gents, can can they get, like is there enough to get it done? <laughs> to get it done, to get uh, our hands Do around we... privacy. Do we think we'll have a privacy law in the books well, in I the mean, next year? <laughs> my my long-standing opinion on this is two things. First of all, the all of this effort makes it much more difficult for us to actually do business with one another, and we are solving the wrong end of the problem. We need to make privacy data unusable, not pretend that we can put the genie back in the bottle. The, the entire internet was built on sharing data. It is why, it is literally at the end of the day, the only reason the internet exists. And to now say, oh yeah, uh, sorry, you know, 60 years ago, we should have thought about this. Uh, it, it's too late. I mean, the genie is out of the bottle and is becoming sentient. Well, see, and that's the thing. I don't think we can prevent it, but I think we can punish the misapplication of it. And that's what I think is interesting about the progress around digital privacy legislation. I think, and again, Carl, I think you're right. It does. We're, we're working on a project with a client right now to uh, profile a large population of solution providers. Who are they? What do they do? How are they currently configured? Where do they make money from? Yada, yada, yada. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, when we would do that kind of project, you put together the survey vehicle, you identify the list of partners, you send out the link to the survey, you crunch the numbers, yada, yada. Now, there's a GDPR regulation that lives in between here and there, and just that we know what we want to do. We have a survey vehicle. We know exactly how we're going to capture and analyze this information. But that vendor is not allowed to give to me the list of the people. And so there has to be a gymnastic somewhere in between about how we actually get that link into the right hands without disclosing unauthorized things because I'm a third party. Now, that I think is never going to go away. And I think it will be an as long as we can keep that level of complexity appropriate, then I'm okay with it. But I think that the question is not, can you prevent people from sharing your information? No, because it's A, it's out there and B, people are people. But can you, on the other hand, wrap them on the knuckles if they do do something inappropriate with your information? I think we can. And I think that's the progress that I'm right. seeing. And, and I think and that's for me, like, because I fall more on Ryan's side of this, where I think like, I actually do think that there needs to be some consequences for edge cases. And I think we need to draw that in a little bit uh, right now. Like, so yes, Carl, you're not wrong. Like the whole thing was built on sharing and there was no consideration of like the atrocities that can happen in the extremes. And we've seen all kinds of stuff that's happening there. And I think 
we can bring i always talk about my guardrails right so i think we can build a few that are that make some sense and then very practically i'm going to observe uh both sides of the aisle are interested in passing this and much of big tech is also interested in passing this all of which tells me the oh if both sides are, are not agreeing and the money people with the lobbying are also okay with some we're gonna get some some privacy law well, is gonna pass. We'll we'll get something, and all the states are also working on this. Many states already have privacy laws, which most people are unaware of. I mean, the the at the end of the day, the problem is that it's it's just like any other thing. If you make it too complicated, it either gets ignored, or it just gets in the way of us actually being able to use our computers. You know, uh, at at the low end. I kind of don't care if you guys see my health records, you know, I could publish them everywhere. It's like, oh, oh yeah, he had a problem with this nerve 12 years ago. Yeah, like, I don't give a shit, right? But I don't want you to steal that data and steal my personality or my whatever, my profile and open up credit cards and whatever. Um, but I've taken care of that, so you can't do it, right? That has nothing to do with HIPAA. My ability to secure my data, and the thing is, we could secure it. We could keep people from opening up accounts in each other's names. It would require, whatever, six-factor authentication. It would slow things down very much. It would mean you can't go to Best Buy and on the, the way out the door say, yeah, I'm going to check that box and apply for a credit card so I can get a 20% discount. That would no longer be the case. So we would get in the way of commerce. And so you can look for whatever they're putting together to be less effective than what it needs to be because it will not interfere with commerce. And and so at the end of the day, yeah, we'll, we want some privacy laws and we'll put some restrictions on ourselves, but we don't want anything that's effective because that would get in the way of commerce. And, and I have to say that I there's a lot of stuff where like GDPR, it's not possible for anybody to be compliant with that law. I don't know. I think you're being rather dismissive of edge of some use cases on those, those no, no. streams that are worth talking about. But like the can spam so act pass. is great. It's it's a thing and it can be enforced. It's not being enforced. It could be enforced. Well, <laughs> but that's a different but that's a different statement. The 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 putting resources to enforce laws is is different than whether or not they should exist or not. I think we can kind of like I mean you just said like can spam like it's kind of an intelligent like we we could say maybe we should fund its enforcement like maybe that's yes. where where we can actually that's a different discussion than whether or not the law should exist or not well and, and see i, think, I know <laughs> I, i'm sorry dave i know i know too many people who live and work in the world of regulatory compliance and enforcement in financial services in commodities trading in big banking right all of these people are out there when there is actual enforcement there is compliance and still commerce, right? You can do both of those things together if people fear the teeth of the enforcement. If you take the teeth out of the enforcement, it doesn't mean anything. But just because complying with something is difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't require it. It just means that more organizations need to get better at it. And quite frankly, I think that that is a value proposition for solution providers going forward. I am a person of tools and process and, and intellect who can come in and ensure that you have compliance. If you've got a, like an actual grown-up professional who can do that kind of stuff for customers and they go, Meh, it's hard, I can't do it, I can't do it. Well, pay me, I'll do it for you. 
Right. That is very true. It opens up a whole space, too, which is worth talking about. So I've got a friend over at Termageddon, and I go through there. I buy his services and uh, go down the long interview, answer all the questions about where I do business and what data I collect and how I use it and what services I provide. And at the end, he puts a statement on my website that is compliant with all the privacy laws of every place I do business on earth and all the people I do business with. I've never read that policy. I have no idea what it says, but I am completely compliant with the law. Okay, exactly. so I'm gonna counter, I'm I'm gonna counter to you by saying, I am also <laughs> a customer of Termageddon. I also go through that process, but I read the document that was produced. Like I said, like, and, and, and so, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I would actually make the, make the discussion of like, I believe that I am following this, my business practices and the way that I operate, certainly would follow the spirit of everything that is written there. Yeah. Now, well, I think I'm actually complying with the law, but I don't. But I read it. <laughs> and so, I mean, I would I would kind of argue that you bought something that you're not leveraging. And that's different than uh, that. That's different. But it's a great place to pause. <laughs> it is. And we will go over to topic number three now, because this one. Oh, guys, you know, some days we get together in topics and they are interesting and dynamic. And then there are other times that I spend hours and hours reading for my own personal enjoyment around the topic because it is so absolutely freaking fascinating. This is one of those. And it is, you're not surprised, the digital twin. No, um, oh, right, on digital twins, oh, I would never guess. So uh, a couple of years ago, for those of you who haven't been around this uh, this podcast forever, we had a very detailed conversation about what it is and why and how it could be used. If you're not familiar with the concept of the digital twin, it is a digital representation in the internet world of a physical thing that lives in the real world and it is designed, it becomes a digital twin, not only because it is an exact digital replica, but that it is aware of and updates according to the experiences of the thing in the real world, right? The simplest answer is you own a bicycle and then you create a digital twin of that bicycle and it tracks how far you ride it, what the conditions are, what what kinds of accidents you might have been in, how, what kind of a rider you are, what you know, where in the country you live, so that when you go back in to get that bicycle serviced, you are not just getting generic service for generic bicycle that once was made in a warehouse. It is utterly aware and personalized service for that object because it knows what has been happening. Now, the article that we are linking to, the BBC, this is always my, my litmus test. As soon as non-technology professionals start having dinnertime conversations, you know it's something that we professionals really need to get ready for, and that's what's happening here. So I would love to hear from people who are not quite as obsessed with the digital twin as I am. <laughs> what do you guys think? Well, so I'm starting to mush my digital twin thinking with my metaverse thinking. And this is this, okay. And uh, because, because I, I feel like this is one of those concepts that has been around a very long time and I still haven't quite seen uh, broad versions of it. Like there, there's, there's this element of saying like, in a way, I can oversimplify digital twin to go, well, yeah, that's just called data about a thing, right? <laughs> like, and I've been, we've been doing that for a very long time. Uh, metaverse is virtual spaces, right? And, and I think these are broad marketing concepts that 
imply an interoperability that would be very interesting that often is not where this ends up going very quickly. And so for me, it, the, the thinking on this was the like, look, I always kind of get interested when the digital trend stuff flashes again, right? Because but, but essentially what people are really saying is, well, hey, there's some data out there that's linked to this physical thing that talks about it in another thing. Wouldn't it be useful if that moved around more? Well, that's another version of like metaverse, which wouldn't it be great if there was a version of you that could move around in digital space, or by the way, digital assets you might own could move around with you. And, and it's the interoperability bit that I think is I'm starting to get much more intrigued by, but it is always the gating factor on all of these things when it comes down to, because ultimately, A, it doesn't seem to ever happen, and B, generally the companies working on it are never motivated to make it interoperable because they believe it's much more valuable when it's internal. So I mushed it all together a little bit to go, I wonder if Digital Twin is spiking because of Metaverse, like maybe they're linked. And I'm kind of lumping them into the same pile. And my question now is all about how are you solving interoperability to make this useful? So I started where you started, which is I checked the date because I thought, oh, did, did he accidentally post up a 10 year old article? <laughs> <laughs> because the the digital twin has been 10 years away for 10 years. So, you know, uh, it, it it's one of these never-ending things. On the other hand, uh, I, I think it's one of these things that I think the key point that Ryan made is that when people who are not techno-goobers start talking about this, then maybe there's some reality to it. And, you know, there have to be these cases where we realize that if you just spun this a little bit differently and and made it less uh, buzzword compliant, you would see that some pieces of this are coming into existence. There are people who uh, assist medical surgeries in uh, other continents over the internet <laughs> using tools where all they have available to them is data and uh, connectivity. And so, you know, there are things happening. We are moving in that direction. I do think, uh, the, the, the metaverse will be burned down and started over at some point. People have to have just a completely different view of that. But as we get more and more connected to every piece of our life, I, I think, Dave, your house with all of your lighting and all of your, uh, you know, uh, Siri controls everything is approximately the opposite end of the spectrum of mine. I think you're closer to being able to recreate that house somewhere else because you can just back up the configuration of your house and <laughs> recreate it somewhere else. It's almost uh, the kind of thing that we would be able to say, look, I just want that house, but I want it online and I want this it in my a, virtual environment. You brought, up a, you brought up a really interesting thing because my longtime sort of college buddies and all tease and go that it's actually what you've just described is actually impossible. That the, the idea, the, the, the quip that everyone tells me is, Dave, you're going to die in that house because you have so customized it <laughs> that you cannot move, right? And so what, what the implication of that is, is you're saying, well, you could take all of this configuration, put it somewhere else. But that requires almost a physical one-to-one -one mapping of those things in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. And that is not the way the real works work. 
It, yeah, it may. Well, so no, here's here's where you guys are going, and and actually, I'm sitting over here going because you're coming around <laughs> to the way of thinking, right? We all live in a world governed by the hype cycle, right? There are things that are invented, and it's going to change the world, and it's everything that every techno nerd had ever dreamed was possible. And then we get to the peak of like hype, and then we all come down into the trough of disillusionment and go, "Well, it never happened. It's never gonna happen." And then we come up the slope of productivity into a world of, you know what, you can't actually use this thing. The internet went through that and bio data went through that. Literally every technological invention in the history of mankind gets way too oversold. It gets crashed and burned and then you come back with practical applications. That is where we're at with the digital twin. We are through or in, we are in the trough of disillusionment. We are coming out the other side with legitimate practical applications. And you wanna know a silly one that's actually causing some of the acceleration right now? Did you guys watch the uh, the Netflix uh, series about uh, about F1 racing? Are you guys F1 racing no, fans? I've heard no? it's good, I've watched it. Okay, phenomenal, interesting. Even if you're not yet an F1 racing fan and as somebody who likes things that go really, really fast, I have been for a long time, but you get into it and it is it is dynamic and it is interesting and it is impossible for a lay person to watch this stuff and not go, oh my God, how do they reinvent a car with the phenomenal precision of aerodynamics and engineering in practically real time from one racetrack to another, right? You might see the Red Bull car out there going around the track week after week after week. It's not the same car. It has been physically reconstructed based on intensely precise recalculations that are specifically tuned for the characteristics of the track that they will be racing on. And you go, how many hundreds of thousands of people do they have working on that to make that happen every week? They don't. It's a team of about 30 people who live in a world of a digital twin. Every element of that car, every attribute of its performance is built into that digital twin. So they don't have to wonder and go to clay model and reconstruct things. They just come back and go tweak it in the digital world and an action in the physical world pops up and a technician does it. Transformer exactly. and they just like move exactly. over to their, the next place. <laughs> Come on, we all know happen. those episodes end in disaster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they exactly. inside out. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Well, that's it's nice. To, always nice to end on a, a happy note. So sadly, that will do it for episode one sixty nine of the Killing It, Killing Killing it. podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SMB Community Podcast. If you found this useful, interesting, or fun, please subscribe, share with your friends, and give us a thumbs up on your favorite social media. Please check out the show notes at smbcommunitypodcast.com and give us your feedback.